Welcome to Built to Go, a van life program. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 194, and we're going to talk about that difficult topic, insurance. What insurance do you need for your rig? Can you insure the whole rig or just the van part, and how much will it cost? I don't know. <laughs> We're also going to talk about the different kinds of pumps you can have for your water system, a review of WeatherTech floor mats, and a tale from the road involving a warning. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Diving right in here, insurance is a very difficult topic to discuss. And, well, folks, I am not an insurance agent. I am not an insurance professional. And uh, basically, you should not take anything I say as anything more than some guy just talking about insurance because it's a difficult, legalistic, and expensive topic. But it does help to have some sort of frame of reference to attack it with, and that's what I'm hoping to provide you today. This was requested by Lynn, so thank you, Lynn, for the idea. And, uh, and also, Lynn, yikes. <laughs> you, you picked a topic that is just rife with pitfalls. But this is something that everybody faces. If you have a camper van, you need to have insurance. I mean, it's not even a question of whether you want it or not. It's required. You are required by law to insure motor vehicles in some ways. Let's, let's talk about that. So, so what is insurance? Okay, we'll start with the definition. You know, insurance is money that you pay that in case something bad happens, you will get more money. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a form of gambling, but it's it's seen as an ethical form of gambling because it is basically a safety thing that you don't get into serious financial trouble because something unexpected happens. And there's another aspect to it too, and, and we're going to talk about this first, and that is the kind of insurance that is required everywhere for every motor vehicle, and that is liability insurance. All liability insurance does is cover in case you injure somebody else or you cause damage to somebody else's vehicle. Now, insurance varies by state. Every state has their own insurance laws. They're all contradictory and complicated, and some insurance companies won't even work in some states because it's so difficult. I mean, Massachusetts is one of those. There are many companies that won't sell insurance in Massachusetts because the laws are so strict. It's a very complicated topic, but they all require some form of liability insurance, which basically says that you pay so much a month so that if you accidentally injure somebody or damage their stuff, the insurance company will pay for that. And my recommendation, just as general citizen here, is that you should try to actually maximize your liability insurance because some of the policies that you get that are really cheap, that will just get you by the law won't actually protect you all that much because while they're legal, some of those laws were written a long time ago and the amount of liability you have could well exceed what the insurance will pay. So it's actually generally advisable to up your liability insurance a little bit. Now, that doesn't cover you at all. If you get into an accident and you injure somebody or damage their vehicle, liability insurance covers them. You get nothing. Nobody's going to fix your car. Uh, some liability policies will cover your injuries as well. So if you get injured, hopefully not, you'll get some coverage there too. Again, you have to read the policy. But remember that just getting the cheapest possible insurance isn't going to cover you for any financial loss, basically. If you want to cover your vehicle, well, that's a totally different thing. 
So then we need to talk about two other kinds of insurance that are very common, collision and comprehensive. Collision insurance is just what it sounds like. If you get into an accident, collision insurance will cover the accident for both parties. And if you have a loan on your van, like if you are leasing or have taken a loan out on your van, you are most likely going to require to carry a substantial collision policy because that protects the people who are who have loaned you the money so that you can have this van. This is the most expensive kind of insurance, but it is the insurance that's actually going to replace your vehicle if you get into an accident. So if that's what you're concerned about, collision insurance is something you want. It is optional. You are not required to have collision insurance unless you have somebody loaning you money. So that's something to consider too. If you're looking to save a little money month to month and you're willing to take a risk on your van, you don't need to have collision insurance. It is a risk. The other kind of insurance that is most often talked about is comprehensive insurance. Comprehensive insurance covers everything that's not a collision. Comprehensive covers things like theft, vandalism, broken windshields, all that kind of stuff. Basically any damage or bad thing that happens to your vehicle that is caused by something unexpected will be covered. If your water pump goes out, no. That's a whole different thing. We're not even going to talk about that. If you, if you want a maintenance policy for your vehicle, that's a totally different subject. In most cases, you can't get collision without also having comprehensive. And it's not always obvious which part of the policy will pay out. And of course, one has a bigger deductible than the other in many cases. And let me give you a hard example of this. I had an old conversion van, a 1995 Voyager, I think it was. We called it Gulliver. It was, you know, a pretty standard 90s conversion van. And I was driving down the road in Virginia, and a rock rolled down the hill and hit my floorboard, which was made of fiberglass, and cracked the hell out of it. And I was like, well, well, darn, <laughs> I wish that didn't happen, but I was fully covered with insurance. So I went to the insurance company and said, Hey, I was in this accident, this rock rolled down the hill. And now I would argue that there was nothing I could do in the circumstance. I was not at fault in any way. Anybody driving there would have had that happen to them, but the insurance that covered it wasn't comprehensive. It was collision. So if I didn't have collision insurance, I wouldn't have been covered at all. And the big thing to consider here is that comprehensive insurance typically has a very low or no deductible, whereas collision insurance typically has a high deductible. When you set your policy, you get to choose the amount of deductible, which is how much money that you have to pay after there's an incident or a report. And the amount you pay will affect your monthly payment. So that's something else to consider. Even though a rock seems like comprehensive to me, to them, it was collision because, you know, it made more money sense for them. Yay. So those are the three basic types of insurance you have to worry about. Liability, protecting other people. Collision, protecting your vehicle from accidents. And comprehensive, protecting your vehicle from all the other stuff that can happen to a vehicle. It's the basic way to look at it. Uh, and, and that fairly well describes the automotive insurance picture. However, for us, we're in a different situation, right? Because we built out homes in our vans. What about protecting the home? For example, you buy a $40,000 van, you put a $20,000 build into it, you've got a $60,000 van. How do you insure your van for $60,000 rather than the $40,000 that the Blue Book will say the value is? Well, that's 
the problem, isn't it? That's a tricky problem. And I've done some research into it. And uh, let me let me start off by saying that I am not insured that way. My, my van was an ambulance. The build is weird. <laughs> so I've basically modified an ambulance. And the way I handled insurance was that I called up State Farm, who is a a company that a lot of people have said is easy to work with in this regard. So State Farm comes up time and time again. I'm not directly endorsing them. I'm just saying that I notice that when people are turned down by Progressive and Geico and all these other insurance companies, State Farm will pick them up. So just saying. I just gave them my VIN and, you know, the 2011 Sprinter uh, 2500. And they wrote me a policy, and that's that. So I am covered for collision comprehensive and liability. But that doesn't cover my build, necessarily. If the van is totaled, the amount of money I'm going to get back is just going to be what a 2011 van is worth, which arguably isn't going to be as much as the entire thing. So I am taking a risk there, but my build isn't that much. So it's a fairly low risk and I'm willing to take it. If I had put $40,000 into building out my rig, I might have a different feeling about that. So how do you ensure that? Well, the big difficulty here is that a lot of insurance companies will not recognize a self-built van as an RV. And that's the trick. How do you get them over that? It's fairly easy to get your self-built camper van insured as just a van. You've, it's a van with stuff in the back of it. That's fairly easy to insure. But to insure the whole thing, the whole value of the van, you have to insure it as an RV. And getting the insurance company to agree that it's an RV is difficult. So what can you do to talk them into it? Well, there's a few strategies here. Now, again, this is just based on research and looking online and seeing what other people have done. You need to do your own research on this. I cannot emphasize that enough, but this is what I've learned and hopefully it'll help you get on your way. One step is to find an agent who will sell insurance for many companies. So don't go to the state farm agent, go to somebody who works with many insurance companies, explain the situation to them and see what they can do. Often that will be a great help. I don't have any direct recommendations for somebody. You're going to want to deal with a person rather than a company. And that's kind of hard to find. And I can't really help you because I don't know where you are, but that's one strategy. Especially if you're in Indiana, you will find people like this being Indiana's the RV capital of the world. For those of you full timing where you don't really have a permanent address, well, you do. I mean, you're going to have license plates on your vehicle. You need to get insurance that matches that license plates as far as the state laws are concerned. And that could actually influence where you want to live because insurance is so different from state to state it can actually influence your decision as to where you want to make your home base. So consider that too. Another thing that you can do, and this is actually what I did, although I didn't use this, is title your van as an RV. Again, every state has completely different requirements for this. In Illinois, what I had to do was go down a checklist and I had to meet something like six out of eight conditions, which were like, have a sink, have a toilet, have a cooktop, all this kind of stuff, have a place to sleep. I had to meet all those conditions. And then I had to take it to the secretary of state 
<laughs> they have an inspection for just this kind of thing. And they signed off on it that says, yes, this vehicle meets these conditions. And then I had to take it to the DMV and they went down the list and they took this letter and they titled my vehicle as an RV. Because of that, I can now go to the insurance company and say, I want to insure this RV, show them my registration, and then they will hopefully say, oh yes, that's an RV, let me insure it. The problem comes is if they look up on tables how much your RV is worth, they don't have any way to look it up because it's not a 2011 Winnebago. It's a 2011 Jeff built this thing. <laughs> There's no table for that. Some insurance companies will actually take the time to walk through your van and come up with a value for it. And one thing that can be super helpful in that is if you have a list, a spreadsheet basically, of everything you've put in your van and everything it costs. Like this cabinet costs this, this, this bed costs this, this refrigerator costs this, all that kind of stuff. If you can give them that data, they're more likely to be able to come up with an amount for you, which is what they need. The sad truth is you are not going to be able to recoup the cost of your labor. It'd be very difficult. If you put $40,000 worth of material into your build, you probably spent two or three months working on it. Your labor's probably lost. That's just one of the realities of this. Just like if you put custom pinstriping on your car and you spent all weekend doing it, that isn't really going to add any value to the car as far as the insurance is concerned. You're not going to get anything for that. So that's a risk we're all going to take. There's another kind of policy that I don't know very much about, but I will mention it so that you can find out about it if you want to. And it is called a personal articles policy. And I should mention that if you have a place to live, you have a house or a condo or whatever, your homeowner's policy or your rental policy should, or in many cases will, cover the things in your van if they get stolen. So you may already have a coverage similar to this. Hey, you camera people, you can easily have ten, twenty thousand dollars worth of equipment and you're going to keep it in your van. Maybe you're more worried about that than your van. I totally understand that. Well, you can insure that directly. The trick is that you have to give receipts. You have to bring the receipt to the insurance company and say, I would like to insure this. And this works for jewelry, basically any personal article. And they will give you a quote on insuring just that. And you can do that for as many things as you have. Theoretically, you could give them your entire build list, everything that you spent to build out your van, and get a personal policy just on that stuff. And that could be a rider on top of all your other automotive policies. One thing you want to look for is the word replacement value. Well, I guess that's words. You want a policy that will cover not the value of your objects, but how much it will cost to replace them. Make sure that is written into the policy. If someone steals your 20-year-old cameras, it's going to cost a lot more than their value to replace them. And what you actually want is to replace them. So... This is a situation where the lower end camper vans have an advantage because there's not as much money in the van. And we all face the risk of losing our entire van at any moment. There can be a fire, an accident, a rock could fall out of the sky. All kinds of things can happen. And if your van's worth $10,000, that's a much lesser risk than if your van's worth $100,000. 
but it's still a risk. And this is a very, very personal thing. So I encourage you to start the search early before you even get into a van. If you can start learning about your state's insurance laws and what's going to be required and understand that no matter what, you're going to be taking some amount of risk. And that's just how it goes. At the end of the day, it's a money game. What's the least amount of money you can pay per month so that you won't lose a lot of money if the worst possible thing happens? And boy, there's a lot of different ways to approach that. So that's it. That's my general information on insurance and van life. And I hope that helps you go start your journey to finding the insurance that you need for your rig. Van Life News. First, I'd like to say thank you to Repro, Karen, and Mike for the very generous donations at buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. That's where you would want to go if you wanted to help support this program. We now have a membership option, which has actually been popular. And look, side note, I never intended for this to be a membership kind of thing, but Folks, if this catches on and a lot of people become members, I will try to create a community around this podcast. I'll start having a website that'll have lists and a map of every place that I recommend and all that kind of stuff. And we'll, you know, we'll see. <laughs> but that's an awful lot of work. So I'm going to have to see more people be interested in that before I'll commit to it. Uh, oh, I also, I have a new video up if you're interested. I, I did this where is Jeff thing and I have made a video that explains every place I went and has all the videos that I took uh, all over my trip of the Canary Islands, Spain and Morocco. So if you'd like to see that, there's a link in the show notes or you can just go to the YouTube page and you should see it there. It should be the latest video as of this recording. Okay, now, the real news. Uh, first piece of news, and some folks have sent this to me, thank you, Flack, is that Kia... Kia, you know Kia, the Korean company that make, makes little cars usually, or some of them are getting quite big now. They have a whole new crazy van concept that they're announcing. It's been all over the news. And there are these modular vans that come in different sizes, and you can remove the back and turn into a pickup truck and do all this kind of stuff. And it's very futuristic. And, of course, they're EVs. And, boy, imagine, wouldn't this be wonderful if it were a camper van. I highly recommend you look at the article or any of the articles. I'll have a link in the show notes to the one I was looking at from The Verge. Uh, these things are very futuristic, very amazing, and they're going to have some serious chicken tax problems, meaning those folks in the U.S. who are interested in this probably will never see one of these vans. Again, I'm harping on the chicken tax because it is really an unfortunate thing for those of us who like vans. But as wonderful as this van looks if it ever reaches production and you can tell they're very shy about giving specifications like how much range these things have well folks in the u.s may not see one for quite a while however news item number two uh fuel prices are falling i am about to plan a couple thousand mile trip here probably a little bigger than that and i took a look at fuel prices and yeah fuel prices are down significantly which is great especially for gasoline i found a good source for finding fuel prices it's from AAA actually and it's simply gasprices.aaa.com and AAA is aaa to be clear gasprices.aaa.com this will give you fuel prices all over the u.s you can look by state you can look see which states are the highest and lowest it's a pretty good thing one thing that is obvious is that diesel is still a heck of a lot more expensive than gasoline. Right now, the average price for regular gas is $3.08 a gallon. 
and the regular price for diesel is $3.95 a gallon. So that's a pretty big difference per gallon. Now there's more energy in a gallon of diesel than there is in a gallon of gasoline. Of course, their engines are completely different, etc. You get basically you get more mileage for the for a gallon of diesel than you do out of a gallon of gasoline. But are you getting 25% more? Mm, probably not. <laughs> so, yeah, diesel is still very expensive, and um, it's just this. It, it didn't used to be this way. I mean, I, I remember when I bought my giant motorhome in, I think it was 2000. Diesel was usually 20 cents cheaper than gasoline. So, this has nothing to do with how much it costs to make the fuel. This is all about supply and demand. Diesel is in really high demand right now. So, again, if you're weighing out buying a new vehicle. Think about how much extra diesel is going to cost you for the advantages that it has. Oh, by the way, the cheapest places to drive, if you are looking to, to do that, is the lower Midwest, uh, in going all the way down to Texas. So Texas, Oklahoma, that whole region there definitely has the lowest prices. And the highest prices, well, not hard to predict here. California is always the highest because they've got a lot of taxes. And also the Northeast. Illinois, where I live, is kind of right in the middle. And finally, the last news item is uh, that lithium prices are falling. So it's a, uh, kind of an interesting development here. Not only lithium, but nickel and cobalt. Lithium, nickel, and cobalt. And why, why do those three minerals matter? Well, that's what we're using to make all our batteries that we're using to power everything. EVs and the batteries we use in the back of vans need these metals at this point. The prices are falling. And the reason they're falling is interesting. It's because of lack of demand. Isn't that weird? It seems like everything is going batteries. We've got all these new batteries everywhere. Everything's got a rechargeable battery now. But the demand for those things is down. And the reason it's down is because the U.S. EV market is kind of faltering right now. People aren't buying as many EVs as was predicted. There's many reasons for this. You know, the range anxiety is still a thing. And people are afraid. They hear stories about them exploding. And there's a lot of negative media about EVs that, in my opinion, isn't justified. But a lot of companies thought that EVs would just continue to grow exponentially, and that growth has slowed. So that means there's a little bit of a glut on the market for all these metals, which is good in a way. But uh, that means that batteries for us should keep coming down in price, which has been the trend forever. So I guess that's good news. I do not think this spells the end of EV vehicles by any means. I think this is just a, a market glitch. And I imagine a year from now, EV sales will be up. However, lithium prices are going down, and that could be a good thing for us. We shall see. Tech Talk. Let's talk about submersible pumps versus pressure switch pumps is what I like to call them. So most RVs come with a pressure switch pump and it works like this. You turn on the faucet and you hear or some noise like that and water comes out of the faucet. That is by far the most common kind of pump you're going to find in an RV. And basically the, the pump has a switch in it that if the pressure in the line, the plumbing drops, it will turn on its pump and pump the pressure back up. So all the pump is actually doing is trying to keep pressure in the line at a certain level. And when you open the faucet, you relieve some of that pressure, water comes out, and the pump tries to compensate. You turn off the faucet, the pump can compensate, and it shuts off. That's basically how it works. 
But that's not the only kind of pump that you can have for your RV. And we're going to ignore USB-powered pumps here. I talked about them not too long ago. The, uh, the other common kind, which some people call the Westphalia pump because they were common in Volkswagen Westphalias, is a submersible pump, uh, also known as a foot pump, although I haven't heard that term used for vans. This is a pump that you literally put in your water tank and coming out of the pump are wires because it needs to be powered and a hose. And the way these work is that if power is applied to the pump, water will flow out the hose. Now there are pros and cons to both of these. So let's go down them and let's start with the submersible pump because they're the cheaper one. Uh, so that's its first pro. They're much cheaper. You can get a submersible pump for 10 or 12 bucks and it'll work. It's, it costs more to get the other kind. The plumbing is exceedingly simple on these. Because pressure isn't really an issue, all you need to do is hook the hose up to anything, a pipe, a faucet. It can be anything you want. And as soon as power is applied to the pump, water comes out. Dead simple. And because it's not always pressurized, leaks are less likely. So very easy. Also easy to troubleshoot. There's just not that much going on here. There's wires going to the pump and a hose coming from the pump. And if you're not getting water, well, does it make noise? If yes, it's not a power problem. If it doesn't, then it's a power problem. That's basically the troubleshooting. It's very simple. Also, they're fairly quiet. You can hear them, but they're not as loud as the other pumps. But there are some cons with these. They do tend to be lower flow. In fact, they are lower flow. You can buy different flow rates of these pumps, but you're not going to get a huge amount of water uh, coming out of them, which is actually kind of a pro too, because you don't necessarily want to use a lot of water when you're in a van. Their wiring for some reason tends to be weird. I've used a few of these and the wire color. So you've got the pump and coming out of the pump are three wires, black, yellow, and blue. And none of these pumps I bought came with a guide to tell you how to hook them up. Now, I'll have a link if, to Amazon for one of these pumps I've used, and there is in the comments of that link the correct wiring. I don't know why they do this. It seems to me red and black would be all you need, but anyway, that's not what they do. So that can be a little weird, but that's just a minor nuisance, really. But the big con is that they need a switch, and this is where things get complicated. So at home, you turn on the faucet and water comes out. With one of these, you would turn on the faucet, flip a switch, water comes out, then you turn the switch off and close the faucet. It's a little strange. One way around this is to buy a faucet that has a switch built into it, which is what I've used. It's actually a really nice faucet. I'll have a link to that too. Um, Sureflow makes this really nice faucet that's great for smaller vans. I had one in Progurus and basically when you turn the water on you hear a click and that is a switch that sends power to the pump. That works really well. In fact, I think that's a really excellent setup. But now let's talk about the pressure switch pumps. Well, they have more pressure. I mean, you can get these in all different sizes. You can have a lot of pressure out of these things. I mean, you know, not quite pressure washer pressure, but easily as much as you'd have in your house. And they can be used with any faucet at all. You don't even have to think about the faucet. You can just go, you don't need an RV faucet or anything like that. You can just go to Home Depot or Lowe's or Menards or whatever and pick out whatever faucet you want, remembering that those faucets use cold and hot water. And if you're only going to have cold water, you need to plummet to both sides, else things get weird. But that's a different plumbing topic. Plumbing is much more difficult with these. I mean, it's fairly straightforward. You have a pipe going from your tank to the pump and then a pipe going from the pump to your faucets. But that connection between the faucet and the pump has to be completely 
tight. No drips or anything like that, else the system doesn't work right. If any air gets in there, things are a nightmare. And in my experience, there you just spend a lot more time making sure that connection's good, whereas with the submersible pump, you just drop it in and you're done. Also, they can be loud. Some people really don't like the noise. That noise really bothers people. Uh, it sounds like a truck slowing down on a big hill using their Jake brake. And there's a way to mitigate that. You can get a thing called an accumulator that's like a pressure tank that will store some pressure so the pump doesn't run as often. But, you know, that's up to you. Um, and that leads to the last point here, which is that they take up space. A submersible pump, by definition, doesn't take up any space because it's inside your tank. So, you know, it takes up a little tiny space for water, but it's not taking up space inside your van. A pressure pump needs to be mounted somewhere that you can get to for service, and it just takes up a lot more space. So that's something else to consider. So which should you choose? Well, my recommendation is that if you've got a smaller rig with only one faucet, yeah, try the submersible. I think that's going to be a lot simpler. It's cheaper and simpler. Those are good things in van life. But if you've got a fancy rig with, say, you've got, you have more than one faucet. I mean, some of these even have three now, right? There's one in the bathroom, there's one in the kitchen, and then there's an outdoor shower. If you've got a setup like that, you may want to go and get the pressure switch. Because at that point, the complexity of wiring is going to overcome the complexity of the plumbing. <laughs> so I think... Basically, if you've got multiple faucets, go with the pressure switch. If you've got a modest build, go with the submersible. That would be my basic recommendation. Product review. So you've seen the ads for WeatherTech on TV probably. I think they're, they're fairly terrible ads. But I happen to drive by the WeatherTech factory just about every week because it's in between Chicago and Tiki Bagoland. And uh, so I think about WeatherTech a lot and I thought, well... What if I bought one of their products so I could talk about it? So I finally bought floor mats for my, my Sprinter. I've never had floor mats in my Sprinter because Sprinters, being industrial vans, have a big kind of rubbery mat anyway. So they're not necessarily needed. But I track a lot of dirt in there and now so snow now that winter's starting to hit us. And I thought, all right, let's get some floor mats. So I bought um, the cheapest WeatherTech floor mats I could get for my van. Now, the trick here is that WeatherTech, their, their real gift is that they laser measure things. So they're not universal kits that you have to cut things to. You want to buy something custom made for your vehicle. And, and WeatherTech is really good at that. They have three different grades. And the older your van is, the less likely it is they're going to have the good grades, the really, really nice custom molded ones. So I got the cheapest ones. For 75 bucks, I got front floor mats. 75 bucks Sounds like a lot, but it isn't. I mean, you can easily spend $300 on floor mats. And in a way, it's important that you don't want to get the cheapest ones because floor mats are actually a safety hazard. Floor mats can shift and they can get under your brake pedal and under your gas pedal. And uh, those are bad things. You do not want anything ever obstructing those pedals. So there's all kinds of warnings when you buy this too to mount it properly. One thing that this WeatherTechs have that I haven't seen before is they come with mounts. So there are these basically plastic bolts that you attach to the floor with fairly generous stickers. And you know, you've got the alcohol pad, you clean off a spot, you put these bolts onto the floor, and then the floor mat snaps into those and that keeps them in place. I've never seen that on any cheaper floor mat. And as far as the fit goes, well yeah, they fit perfectly. 
and they feel like they're a fairly durable material. I don't think these things are going to collapse on me anytime soon. Now, obviously, I haven't done a long-term test because I just got them, but bottom line, WeatherTech floor mats? Yeah, I actually think they may be worth the extra money you'd pay rather than picking up the generic set at Walmart. And I'm not a big fan of those generic sets because, again, they move, you have to cut them just right, and if you screw up, you could end up in a situation where you step on the brakes and nothing happens. That's a bad thing. So I bought mine at Amazon. I'll have a link in the show notes. This isn't sponsored in any way. Um, But I noticed that Buying from Amazon, really, they just sent the order to WeatherTech, and then WeatherTech shipped them directly to me with FedEx. So, eh, whether you use the Amazon link or not is completely up to you. But yes, I'm going to say that WeatherTech floor mats are actually worth the extra money. Tales from the road. So, yes, I just got back from all these exotic places, and one of those exotic places was Tangier, Morocco. Now, Tangier is on the north coast of Morocco, and it's right across the Strait of Gibraltar from, you guessed it, Gibraltar. And it was really interesting being able to see Africa and Europe at the same time. There aren't too many places in the world where you can see two continents at the same time, and that is one. And I could look to the left and see... Europe, and I could look to the right and see Africa, and I don't know. I thought that was really cool. I'm like on the deck of the ship waving like, look, 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 it's Africa, it's Europe, and people are wandering by me with their drinks like, what the hell is he talking about? I don't know. But this is the stuff that excites me. Anyway, I was all ready to explore, and uh, I had a tour scheduled because I wanted to go see the the souks, which are the, the shopping areas in the town, and everything I'd read said that they were just a warren of maze-like passages, and everybody gets lost in there. And, well, you know, I'm on a cruise. I have to be back at a certain time. I can't actually afford to get that lost, so I thought, okay, I'll go with a guide, and that way I can be guaranteed of getting out. But they changed my time on my tour. I had it scheduled for 8 o'clock. They changed it to noon. So I was stuck with four hours in the morning. So what do you do? Well, I thought, well, I'll just get off the ship and explore. Now, Tangier, the ship docks pretty much right there. It's not that far from the port. And you could walk to this really cool casbah that overlooks the hill. Now, a casbah, you've heard that term before, of course. Rock the casbah. What the heck is a casbah? Well, it turns out it's just a fort. It's an old fort or a walled part of the city. But what's inside them is is very different. Uh, In Rabat, for example, there was a garden. And in Tangier, inside the Kasbah, is the souk, the different shopping areas, also called medinas. There's high medinas, low medinas. That's a very complicated topic. It doesn't matter. The story is this. I walked off the ship, and there was a shuttle bus there, That was free, and it offered to take us into town, which was a totally different section than where I wanted to go. So I was talking to the local who was organizing the shuttles, and I said, uh, oh, so this takes us over there, but what if I want to just go to the Casbah that I can see from the ship? And uh, he said, well, yeah, you can just walk there, but um, I don't think you should. In fact, I'm a local here, and I wouldn't feel safe walking there. Now, cruise companies are not dumb they basically won't take you anywhere that's terribly dangerous and it was odd to hear somebody ostensibly working with the cruise line say that this place isn't safe and i was really taken aback by that because 
I just have never heard that before. I mean, sure, you'll get guides like, you know, you want to avoid this area in the dark and stuff, but this was this beautiful-looking area right next to the ship. I mean, basically, it was this cliff covered with fortress walls and then this massive mosaic building on top of it that had the words Hotel Continental written on them. Very picturesque area. It looked wonderful. It was someplace I wanted to explore. But this guy, local, fairly young guy, was telling me, no, 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 you don't want to. It's too dangerous. So, okay, I'll listen to the local. And I got on the shuttle bus, and it took me downtown to a different area. And I I did an interesting thing there, which is I just sat on a park bench. That's it. I sat on a park bench in a square and just observed and just watched. And that was a really interesting thing. But that's not the tale. The tale is that when I got on my tour at 12 o'clock and wandered around, guess where we went? We went right to the area where he said it was too dangerous to go. We went to the Hotel Continental and we had some lovely mint tea and got to tour the hotel. It's absolutely beautiful. It's in my video. If you want to see what it looks like, uh, you know, check out the YouTube video I just posted because it's a gorgeous place. And then we went down the long stairs and into this big plaza and met our bus, which took us like the hundred feet back to the ship. Completely delightful. Nothing there threatening at all. The only thing that was even possibly threatening, I mean, threatening is way too strong of a word, was that there were these kids there. It was two kids. They were maybe 10 and they were trying to sell us gum, like Beeman's gum packs. I, I don't know if they were smart kids. They realized that you can't buy gum on cruise ships and they go, oh, here's our chance. I don't know. And they would like run ahead of us and they would point out flaws in the walkway. Like there was a missing step on the stairs. And even though they didn't speak any English at all, they would see us coming and then point really dramatically at the stairs. Oh, stairs, you know. Unfortunately, because I had it in my mind that this was the dangerous area of Tangier and I'm looking around like, where's the danger? I don't see it. I didn't trust these kids. I thought maybe this was some kind of a scam or if you gave them money, something bad would happen. Or if you bought the gum, I, I don't know, but a local had warned me about this. Honestly, I don't know what the heck was going on. I think the local was wrong. I don't think that was a particularly dangerous area. It was a particularly bad area. If you wanted to avoid people coming up to you, trying to sell you things. I mean, that is a common thing in Morocco and that happened there. But again, common thing in Morocco. So I don't know. What was his motivation to tell me that? Did he want me to get on the bus because his brother owns a business right near the bus? And I, I don't know. In retrospect, I wish I'd given those kids a little bit of money because I think they were just kids trying to make a buck any way they could. And they were perfectly polite and delightful. And I kind of feel bad that I didn't buy some gum from them. If I could go back, I totally would. But, um, mm, sometimes you have to make a decision and, uh, you don't know if it's going to be the right decision until afterwards. And well, I made the wrong decision here, but heck, I got a story out of it. So it's always the right decision. A place to visit. I went to this place a while back before, I think it was before I was doing the podcast, actually. I don't actually remember, but, um, it's called the devil's Icebox sounds very treacherous, but it's actually a very interesting cave that's mostly outdoors. 
<laughs> if that makes any sense. It's an outdoor cave um, in the middle of Missouri, right in the middle of Missouri, um, just west of St. Louis, not too far from Columbus. And it is a lovely place to go for a hike, especially on a hot summer's day, which is why I'm telling you this in January. This is just a little state park. It's not that little. It's a fairly good sized state park, but people don't talk about it. it. I never hear about this place. It's in Rock Bridge Memorial State Park. And the Devil's Icebox itself is this weird, like, hole that there's a staircase and you go down into this hole. And then there's this cave in the hole. And you can go into the cave although it gets very, very narrow at some point. And the temperature is like 20 or 30 degrees lower than it is anywhere else in the park. In fact, you may find ice there even in June and July. And hence the name Devil's Icebox. The icebox part is obvious. The devil part is because, well, we name things devil all the time in this country, often because we can't translate the Native American languages. But yeah, I didn't find any devils, unfortunately. What I did find was a very beautiful place. There was there was this one section of arched rock that was maybe 100 feet long, then 20 feet high, and it went over the river, and you could walk up the river under the arched rock. Just a really nice place to be. I don't think it gets enough attention, so I'm going to give it a little bit. There wasn't any camping on site, but in this part of Missouri, it's not very difficult to find places to park your van. So I recommend you check this place out, uh, probably in the summer, unless you're super hardy and want to try to trek through there in the winter. It is called Devil's Icebox at Rock Bridge Memorial State Park. I'll have a link in the show notes. One note, do not wear footwear that you have worn in any other cave. And there's signs about this because of white nose syndrome. This is a, a concern everywhere in the world. And uh, I actually had to change my shoes because I, I had boots on that I had worn, believe it or not, in a cave in Vietnam. <laughs> I had forgotten this. So I followed the sign and I changed into my sneakers and it was just fine. Devil's Icebox, Rockbridge Memorial State Park in Missouri. Resource recommendation. A real simple, easy resource recommendation. If you are the kind of person that likes to travel, especially the back roads in the United States, well, I've talked about Travels with Charlie. That's an obvious book you should read. There's The Road by Jack Kerouac, which eh, didn't really hit me the right way. But this book is it's just one of those must-read books because it's a book about a guy who built out a van and travels all over the United States. How could it be any more perfect? It's called Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moon, and it came out in the early 80s. It was a huge hit, very, very famous book. And it's basically the story of his travels in 1977 around the U.S. Now, 1977 is 45 years ago or so now, or it's getting to be 50 years ago almost. So he's describing a world that doesn't exist anymore. But yet the truths he discovers as he's traveling around these places, many of them still hold true. And some of the laments he has about how the interstates are basically anonymizing America. I mean, for example, if you drive coast to coast on an interstate, you don't really learn anything about the states you're going through. Whereas if you took the older by roads like US 50 or US 20, you would see the character of all these places. And you know, that has absolutely come to pass. I'm about to drive to Florida in a couple weeks and, uh, I am, 
definitely not going to get the sense of what Kentucky is as I pass through. You know what I mean? Very, very well written. A lovely story to listen to. I'm actually listening to the audiobook now. Um, I read the book years and years ago. And, and what I really like about this is that like Travels with Charlie, this is a book that you can come back to. You can read it again and experience it for the first time. Because when I first listened to this when I was a teen, I hadn't visited all these places that he mentions. And now I have. I recognize a lot of the names and I have pictures that associate with them and it, it changes the experience completely. So if you're looking for an amazing road trip book, very thoughtful, somewhat spiritual, but not in a not an oppressive way, more in an appreciative way, this is a great book. I can't recommend it highly enough. So it's called Blue Highways and he explains why it's called Blue Highways right at the beginning. And I have a link in the show notes. It's a great audiobook. It's also an actual book. And he wrote another book talking about how he wrote this book. It's a whole separate thing. So give it a look. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 194. Music, as always, is by Simon Wegg. Again, folks, I will be at VanFest at the end of January down in Viero, Florida, not far from Cape Canaveral. I really hope to see you there. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And until next time, remember the words of the very problematic Woody Allen, who said, There are worse things in life than death. Have you ever spent an evening with an insurance salesman?